arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. I've decided to read from Killzone, A Sniper Looks at Dealey Plaza. But I want to do this before we actually get into Dealey Plaza. This is Craig Roberts, a U.S. Marine sniper, and this is his book. First, I analyzed the scene as a sniper and the time allotted in the distance along the street in which the rounds had impacted the target from the first report to the final shot. It would take a minimum of two people shooting. There was little hope that I was alone, even if armed with precision equipment that I had used in Vietnam, that I would be able to duplicate the feat described by the Warren Commission. So if I couldn't, I reasoned Oswald couldn't, unless he had help. I looked at the engagement angle. It was entirely wrong. The wall of the building in which the windows overlooked Dealey Plaza ran east to west. By looking directly down at the best engagement angle, which was straight out the window facing south, I could see Houston Street. Houston was perpendicular to the wall and ran directly toward my window. This is the street on which the motorcade had approached and would have been my second choice as a zone of engagement. My first choice was directly below the window, at a drastic bend in the street that had to be negotiated by Kennedy's limousine. It would have to slow appreciably, almost to a stop, and when it did, the target would be presented moving at its slowest pace. The last zone of engagement I would pick would be as the limo drove away toward the west in the grassy knoll. Here, from what I could see, three problems arose that would influence my shots. First, the target was moving away at a drastic angle to the right from the window, meaning that I would have to position my body to compete with the wall and a set of vertical water pipes on the left frame of the window to get a shot. This would be extremely difficult for a right-handed shooter. Secondly, I would have to be ready to fire exactly when the target emerged past some tree branches that obscured the kill zone. Finally, I would have to deal with two factors at the same time, the curve of the street and the high-to-low angle formula, a law of physics Oswald would not have known. Even if I waited for the target to pass the primary and secondary engagement zones and for some reason decided to engage instead in the worst possible area, I still had to consider the fact that Oswald made his farthest and most difficult shot. I estimated the range for this shot to be between 80 and 90 yards. This was his final shot that according to the Warren Commission struck Kennedy's head. As an experienced sniper, something else bothered me. Any sniper knows that the two most important things to be considered in selecting a position are the fields of fire and a route of escape. You have to have both. It's of very little value to take a shot and then not be able to get successfully away to fight another day. Even if the window was a spot that I would select for a hide, I had doubts about my ability to escape afterwards. According to what little I have read, the elevator was stuck on a floor below at the time in question, and only the stairway could have been used as a means of withdrawal, and there were dozens of people, potential witnesses, below, who would be able to identify anyone rushing away from the scene. Not good. But Oswald was not a trained or experienced military sniper. He was supposed to be little more than some oddball with a grudge and for that reason had decided to buy a rifle and shoot the President of the United States, or so the Warren Commission would have us believe.
Knoll and the picket fence, which I have purposely saved for last. I walked up the slope and around the fence, arriving in the parking lot that was bordered on the northwest by the train tracks. I walked the length of the fence, stopping at a spot on the eastern end. I looked over the fence at Elm Street and froze. This is exactly where I would position myself if I wanted to make the most accurate shot possible considering the terrain I had explored. It had some drawbacks. It was close to witnesses and prone to a pre-incident discovery. But the advantages far outweigh the disadvantages for a determined assassin. The target vehicle would be approaching instead of moving away and thereby continuously decreasing the range. The shot would almost be a flat trajectory, making the down angle formula a mute point. The deflection right to left angle would change little until the car had passed the freeway sign on the north curb line. And finally, it offered numerous escape route possibilities. Behind me to the north and west was a parking lot full of cars, a train full of boxcars, and several physical terrain features to use as cover during withdrawal. It was by far the best spot. Looking almost due east across the grassy open park, like the plaza, I could see two multi-story office type buildings approximately the same height as the depository. The rooftops on either building would be excellent firing positions for a trained rifleman with the proper equipment and would be the places I would select if I wanted the best possible chance of not being detected in advance. Without going to the roofs of each, I could not determine the accessibility of the escape routes, but for firing platforms, they were ideal. Then, considering the possibility of multiple snipers, which meant a conspiracy, I had to ask myself, how would I position the shooters to cover the kill zone in front of the grassy knoll? My military training once again took over. I would use an area within the plaza that would afford the best kill zone for either a crossfire or a triangulated fire. Simply put, I would position my teams in such a way that their trajectory of fire converged on the most advantageous point to assure a kill. In the military, single snipers are seldom used. Normally, the smallest sniper team consists of two men, a sniper and a spotter slash security man. Even in police SWAT teams, a marksman has an observer who is equipped with a spotting scope of binoculars to help pick out and identify targets and handle the radio communications. In this case, I would position at least one team behind the picket fence, more if I wanted to secure the rear against intruders. Another on one or both of the two office buildings, which I later found to be the Dallas County Records Building and the County Criminal Courts Building, and possibly a team on the building across the street north of the Records Building known as the Dal Tex Building. I would never have put anyone in the school book depository with so many locations that were more advantageous unless I needed a diversion. If I did, it would be a good place for red herrings to be observed by witnesses. As Patch and Sherry enter Dealey Plaza and the assassination unfolds and later the shots, take into account what Craig Roberts, the U.S. Marine sniper, said. Look where the shots came from. These shots that I determined from researchers and witnesses in Daly Plaza. Now tonight we begin episode 10 of Return to Dallas by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 63. Friday, November 22nd, 1963, 12.15 p.m. Patch listened carefully to the conversation between a man around six foot five and his friend. Sherry held his wrist as the large man shook his head. 
Well, he had to be a Secret Service agent. You saw him walking toward Commerce, Philip. That leather and cloth case was a gun case. He was taller than you, John. The gray and white shirt. And with that crew cut, he had to be government. Sherry shook her head. At this point, Patch, I don't trust anyone. Where's this guy now? Patch pinched the bridge of his nose. I'll just lay down in front of the president's car. They started walking up the sidewalk again. Patch slowed when he saw the yellow Hertz sign atop the depository against the silver bright sky. Pigeons lifted off the top of the roof building and circled the plaza. A truck with the lettering Honest Joe's Pawn Shop was parked near the depository. Moon, even if he regained consciousness, would never find them in the crowd. Now turning onto Cedar Springs Road off Turtle Creek. In the distance, the advanced motorcycles moved up Main Street steadily toward Dealey Plaza. Patch gazed up at the building where Oswald worked. A man stood in the far left-hand window. He had something in his hand. Then he backed inside. At the opposite end, a dark-skinned man lingered by the window. At the far end of the fifth floor, a blonde-haired man in a brown coat passed by the window. Two men fiddled with something in the east window. 12.16 p.m. Near the depository's front entrance, a young man in combat fatigues collapsed in some kind of seizure. He passed out on the pavement. His face had a slight cut, perhaps from hitting the asphalt. A policeman hovered over him, and an ambulance appeared at the plaza at 12.19 p.m., according to the Hertz clock. Another cop remarked to a fellow officer that there had been over a dozen fake calls to the depository in the last couple of weeks. A motorcycle radio sounded. Advise three that the ambulances have arrived and are standing by. On the fifth floor of the corner of the depository, three black men casually waited for the president. Crowd on Main Street in real good shape. They have them back off the curb. The denser crowd also indicated the motorcade would arrive momentarily. As the Honest Joe's pawn shop truck pulled from the depository, Patch and Sherry approached the northern pergolas, white in the bright sunshine across the street from the traffic light. Good shape. We're about to cross Live Oak. Drop back. We have to go at a slow speed from here on now. The hair on Patch's arms tingled with static electricity. As the digits on the Hertz sign changed, cars and people around him slowed. The outside light dimmed as if a cloud had passed overhead. Patch's eyes popped near a guy with a fedora and a lightweight coat at the traffic light. He assumed a dimensional alignment inches off the asphalt. Retrograde now left him helpless to stop the president's motorcade. Sherry's stagnant arms began to rotate. Her face tightened as she looked around at the Houston and Main Street traffic light. Two men were propped up on the pole behind her to get a better look at President Kennedy. The retrograde bubble clogged the time flow as a blink of her eyes took several seconds. Patch's voice echoed inside the dimensional warp. He raised his hands up and yelled. Not now! Not now! He stretched out his arms to her, but the smooth dimensional energy enveloped her. Would he be sent away from her to an uncertain future? Again, he ran his fingers over an unseen barrier between the matter outside and his quasi-existence inside the bubble. He turned toward the looming depository. 
Several policemen and an ambulance up ahead moved ever so slowly away from the building. The crowd had formed like statues along Houston Street and the gray block facade at the Elm Street corner. Behind the crowd, people watched inside the corner windows below the white Venetian blinds. Red letters from the Texas bank sign were held up invisibly against the blue sky down Main Street and below, the Dallas citizens were several deep inside the curb as the limousine approached in the distance. The long, dark car edged ever closer toward the turn onto Houston Street. A light-colored Ford, the lead car, inched ahead of the two motorcycle cops driving parallel to President Kennedy's limousine. In the distance, an American flag and the presidential navy-colored flag capped both sides of the limousine's hood. Gridded chrome glistened on the front grille, boarded by two headlights on either side. A Cadillac, packed full of Secret Service agents in black suits, trailed right behind the Lincoln. Patch visualized the long, dark car in his dreams, disappearing into the storm across the prairie. Along the road, men and women raised their arms to greet the President of the United States. The President, in a light gray suit, waved in very slow motion to someone on the far side beyond his pink-suited wife. She wore a matching pillbox hat snugly over her thick brown hair. According to the papers, the governor of Texas, John Conley, and his wife sat in front of the president. The driver looked toward the crowd. With a bewildered expression, Sherry mouthed Patch's name as she started forward under a red, white, and blue star cap banner just beyond the traffic light. A policeman holding his white hat raced diagonally to block her path. The cops steered Sherry back into the crowd next to a black woman in a light white jacket. Patch again felt his heart thump as the limo moved ever so slightly forward. The depository sign flipped to 12.29 p.m. Kennedy progressed onto Houston Street, seven minutes behind schedule. Somehow from inside the bubble, Patch had to slow or stop that limo. He drifted backward several dozen yards away from the traffic light. Behind Sherry, the advanced motorcycles began a curved trajectory from Main Street onto Houston Street. The people of Dallas smiled and turned toward the corner. Ahead, they lined both sides of the road like fans at a silent game. More than just citizens were on Elm Street. He spotted two men in fedora hats. Both men were familiar high-level intelligence operatives. A smattering of people, probably employees, had gathered on the front steps at the alcove of the depository. On the fourth floor, to the right, four women watched the parade from one of the open windows. Two dark-skinned men hovered in the corner fifth floor window. As he stood in the middle of Houston Street, he looked left. Past the sign for the Stemmons Freeway, the crowd, some people with cameras, thinned out slightly in front of a sloping grass hill banking the concrete pergolas. Another road across the street paralleled Elm Street and inclined toward the concrete triple underpass. A group of men and a couple of cops stood on the tracks directly above Elm Street. The two lead motorcycles were now actually on Houston Street and gradually faced the depository building. Going through the front depository entrance would be difficult with the crowded doorway. 
patch checked over his shoulder. The president's car was not far away down Main Street. He ran forward along the sandstone brick building. He passed between a few parade spectators and the frozen policemen in their blue and gold uniforms blocking Houston Street to the north. Patch had come to believe that Kennedy would be killed here in Dallas, but he never envisioned the wide range of people involved. The shadow of the depository darkened as he rounded the corner of the building a short time later. Out back, open bay doors perpendicular to each other lined the outside dock. The dock area itself was designated in white letters above. Texas School Book Depository Loading Dock. Patch leaped over the dimensional contours outlining the dark stairs and entered the building through an open metal door. Inside, the painted pipes and electrical cables formed a maze across the ceiling. He spotted an old staircase beyond stacks of cardboard boxes. Inside the narrow stairway, he started upstairs. Upon reaching the second floor, he paused to catch his breath. He leaned into the second floor, built with wallboard and a wood grain door next to a floor safe. A motionless Lee Oswald sat in the booth seats on the right side with his hand wrapped around a glass Coke bottle. He wore a brown shirt with a unique jacket-like lapel collar open over his undershirt. Oswald read a newspaper as he sat at the table. For several seconds, with the motorcade coming up Main Street, Patch stared at the back of Oswald's neatly trimmed dark hair. From this area, Oswald could easily go to the first floor and watch the parade. Oswald! He walked around in front of the smaller man. Oswald! Oswald heard nothing as Patch's voice echoed in the bubble. How could Oswald shoot the president from down here? Had Patch changed something again by returning in time? He tried to shake Oswald's coke, but all outside matter remained immovable and smooth. Patch glanced out the rear window. Then he moved past the safe into the stairs. He scrambled up the narrow stairs but turned again. Oswald had begun to lift up the folded newspaper. Patch then grabbed the dimensional edges of the metal pipe banister. On the fourth floor, he observed the four women watching the approaching motorcade and the third pair of windows in the triple underpass side of the building. Anyone coming down those stairs from the upper floors would have been seen by these women certainly if they descended the stairs after a shooting. He resumed the journey upward. On the fifth floor, three black men ate lunch at the windows. He twisted around and went up another floor. Inside the bubble, he crossed on the new plywood floor toward the window in the corner. He wondered if an assassin had slipped into the building with a floor-laying crew. A slew of boxes partially blocked the exact window above the three men on the lower floor. The elevators were stopped on the fifth floor. To his right, someone had wedged a rifle stamped 7.65 Mauser on the barrel between rows of open boxes and a single box. Was this the rifle that had disappeared back inside the window? He rounded the wall of boxes and a second set of boxes propped to the lower brick casing of the window. One box rested on the brick sill and leaned against the second two boxes. Perhaps the same person had deposited a shell on the floorboard near the bottom box and against the painted bricks. Less than a foot away, a second shell lay identically in the floor crevice next to the bricks. 
The last shell was diagonally on the floor next to another cardboard box. Had this person thrown a crumpled lunch bag on the wood floor? Patch retreated along the book stacks next to the rear windows. In the lot behind the stockade fence, a white Impala passed a blue and white Oldsmobile station wagon and a black Ford with Texas plates. The man in the Ford had a phone or radio in the car. The driver of the Ford held the mobile unit in his hand. Red mud or dirt covered the paint up to the Impala's windows. The car left the lot. A man in a cocky uniform held a movie camera as he stood between the pergola and the stockade fence. Behind the fence, three men threw something into a red pickup truck. Then they headed for the rail yard. Patch scanned the people on the triple underpass, but caught sight of motorcycles was turning near Elm Street. For some reason, to his right, three men climbed inside a railroad boxcar. Patch moved to the front of the sixth floor as the motorcade neared the corner. At the open window, he saw the light-colored Ford. The lead car had turned onto Houston Street. Another cop held Sherry at the corner as the Ford passed. Patch retreated above the floorboards and back to the stairs. He thought about Oswald in the lunchroom. At each floor, he checked the windows. There were still men at the corner of the fifth floor window. His watch showed 1 p.m. in his diminished time, but the real time had to be approaching 12.30 p.m. He left the building at the docks. Once on Houston Street, he saw the dark blue presidential limousine, presidential seal flag imperceptibly flapping, had just angled its nose onto Houston Street from Maine near Sherry. To his right, people looked out the windows and sat on the fire escape in the adjacent Dow Tex building. As he paused to slow down his breathing, he read the Hertz sign, 12.29 p.m. The lead motorcycles were already on Elm Street in the plaza, and the light-colored Ford with the two men inside began the turn onto Elm Street. He sprinted toward the approaching limousine and the Cadillac with agents behind. Mrs. Kennedy's pink hat, dark hair and wide smile emerged in the brilliant light from behind the approaching limousine's American flag. Patch staggered forward. The president leaned toward his wife. In the shaded bubble, Patch stood no more than six feet away from the creeping limousine. He attempted to grab the car door only to encounter the smooth contours of the dimensional barrier. The limousine barrier actually bumped him ever so slightly. The bullets might do the same thing. He stepped away from the motorcycles behind the president's car, but he slipped and fell over. His hands and hips hit the street barrier as the motorcycles nearly hit him. In Tampa, the motorcycles were alongside the presidential limousine. He immediately got to his feet and ran by the president as the car aligned toward Elm Street. Some of the people in the depository had turned as the president's car approached. In the doorway crowd, a man who might have been Oswald, his shirt still open to his t-shirt, leaned forward on the left side of the school book depository entrance. Ahead, a man in a plaid shirt rounded the depository side of the stockade fence. Still, Patch did not see anyone with a rifle in the upper windows of the depository. A shot from the depository right now with the approaching limo seemed an easy shot. Boxes remained in the sixth floor window, but nothing more. Behind the fence, the plaid guy spoke with the man in a dark suit. Patch focused on President Kennedy, 
Jackie, the governor, and Mrs. Connolly. With no way to stop the limousine, he darted left. He ran by the pergola and onto the open grass. The crowd was sparse out here and on the base of the hill across the street. He stopped at the curb, diagonal to a lady in a red raincoat and a dark-haired woman in a gray coat. A young blonde-haired woman with a babushka scarf around her head raised a movie camera to film the motorcade. A cop followed the man in the plaid shirt behind the fence. The man in the dark suit had moved onto the tracks. He spoke to a railroad worker wearing coveralls and a hat as he stood in front of the switching box. As he said something, he retreated to the fence. The man bent over and then stood upright against the switching box. The president's car had swung onto Elm Street. No agents stood on the president's running boards. Strangely, two bright yellow marks on the concrete were neatly painted on each side of the curb across from the hill. More people in the crowd raised their arms to wave to the president. One by one, Patch panned the open windows of the surrounding buildings. People inside the depository doorway tracked the president's car proceeding imperceptibly along the sandstone building. The car moved in the autumn sunshine under a cluster of oak trees and toured a rectangular highway sign. President Kennedy smiled and waved. He had the most serene expression on his face. Patch thought he saw a black man in the corner of the window of the sixth floor of the book depository. White helmeted motorcycle cops with their glass windshields and two red signal lights now traveled a distance behind the limousine. Even though the haze had cleared to a warming sunshine, a man in a sport coat opened a black umbrella into the air. A dark-skinned man in a light blue jersey and a dark beret waved at the president as the man with the umbrella continued his machinations. Half a dozen people ran across the grass to meet the president approaching in the Lincoln convertible. A spiraling gray swirl crossed the plaza and produced a spark on the asphalt near the president. As Patch turned to find the source, the linear path dissipated like the remains of a lighted fuse. From the top of the county records building at the corner of Houston and Main Streets, another thin straight line, like smoke spinning, moved steadily downward toward Kennedy. He stopped waving to the crowd. To his right, a little girl turned and stopped running. Kennedy looked puzzled. Patch observed the slow motion of the president's mouth. Even within the bubble's diminished motion, the president's head very rapidly moved from left to right. The president's body then slowly stiffened as the bullet entered below his right shoulder. Mrs. Kennedy began to lean toward President Kennedy. No one appeared to be shooting at the president from the corner sixth floor window. A straight gray bullet trail emerged from the far left corner of the triple underpass. The spiraling laser-like trail pierced the windshield. The president's hands tightened. The governor, ever so slowly in real time, outside the shaded bubble, began to turn over his right shoulder. The president's hands moved upward toward his throat, and he lurched to the left. He had been hit through the Adam's apple. Glass chips from the windshield produced a slight shrapnel wound on Kennedy's face. Patch ran through the bubble along the Elm Street grass toward the motorcade. A man in a yellow shirt stood with his son, 
Behind him, a woman in a brown coat and kerchief held up her camera to film the president. Patch's eyes opened wide as another gray bullet trail rocketed out of the second floor of the Dal Tex building. Moving steadily, the bullet missed the car. The gray pipe-like smoke swirled past Patch on the grass and silently pinged the curb, scattering the concrete chips. A small residue of blood formed on the cheek of a dark-haired man standing below the center underpass. After the wounding of the president, from the western end of the depository's upper windows, a gray pipe bullet trail pushed downward toward the plaza. The governor's shoulder moved downward at a sharp angle, and his cheeks began to balloon out. From Patch's perspective, the shooting had lasted 20 or more seconds, but only a few seconds in real time. The trail to the depository window dissipated into nothingness. John Conley's cheeks were fully inflated, and his wife eventually pulled him to the other side of the car. The governor's face contorted into a pain-induced grimace. Patch tried to read his lips in a diminished motion, but he only understood a few words. In front of the pagola, across the street, a man in a dark suit and hat, steadied by a younger woman below, held a movie camera and tracked the motorcade top one of the white concrete risers. The limousine driver turned around to check something and inexplicably, the car stopped for a long time. The brake lights glowed red. The brunette woman in the dark gray coat aligned the camera with the president's car but the president's body had slumped toward his wife. Conley's face tightened in excruciating pain in his wife's lap. Instantaneously from the tree clump, a flash lingered like a warning lantern in the night, and a ring of smoke slowly materialized at the stockade fence. Workers atop the triple underpass had turned slightly. The man in the suit bent over the fence as the skinny railroad man with glasses and a thin mustache slowly pointed toward the first flash. A bullet trail from the little hill tore into the grass near the woman with the camera and another woman in a red coat. A hatless policeman wearing shooter's glasses slowly retracted a rifle on the hill. His badge glistened briefly. The young army man filming near the stockade fence dropped to the ground as if he were in combat. At the left side of the triple underpass, a flash and smoke preceded the spinning gray path of the bullet. The president's driver, instead of leaving the plaza, turned again for several seconds. The gray trail connected directly to a newly formed dark opening, scattering the hair above President Kennedy's forehead above the right eye and exited out the rear of his skull. As Jackie held him, Kennedy moved slightly forward, his hand near his throat, his auburn hair profiled, heightened in the sunlight. At the left side of the underpass, a slow mass of gun smoke drifted into the front of the plaza. The president's body, as if pushed by a giant, had barreled forward. A bullet had entered his head just above the right ear. Kennedy's skull exploded so violently, brain matter and spray cascaded outward and upward maybe four feet high. The bullet exited and formed a wound about the size of a baseball in the right anterior of his head. A sizable chunk of the president's skull bone tumbled over the limo's trunk and half his brain was exposed down to the pink cerebellum. The lasting impact flung the president's body backward. Fleshy matter and blood now covered the motorcycle windshields. 
Patch was horrified by the gaping, fleshy hole in the trim brown hair in the rear of the president's head. A piece of the skull and hair slowly rolled across the trunk as the car seemingly stopped. From the upper depository window, a gray trail extended rapidly toward the car, hitting the governor in the wrist and thigh. A car full of Secret Service agents remained at a maintained distance. Only one of the agents ran forward from the car. Another agent started out of the car, only to be called back by another man. Inside the Cadillac, an agent lifted an automatic weapon into the air. A middle-aged man with long dark hair and an open white shirt and cocky pants ran adeptly toward the cars along the railroad side. In his hand was a trance receiver. On the hill, a policeman kicked the army man with his camera in the buttocks. The man yelled up at him, and the policeman waved a shotgun outside the bubble. Then the man slowly removed the film canister from his camera and threw it at the policeman. Mrs. Kennedy inched on her knees over the limousine trunk. A security man in a dark suit from the car behind ran ponderously slow in diminished time toward the limousine. Patch turned away from the brain-exposed hole in the back of the president's head. The security man caught the car and pushed Mrs. Kennedy back up inside. He turned and gave a thumbs-down gesture to the car full of agents. The man in the dark suit atop the hill turned toward the tracks. Patch climbed the hill toward the stockade fence and rounded the side bagola. He saw a policeman without a hat near the stockade fence. But along the inside of the wood fence, the man in the suit scrambled away with a rifle securely against his chest. He neared a metal extension or pipe that followed down the railroad tracks. Waiting was the man in the gray railroad coveralls and hat. The man in the suit precisely lofted the rifle through the air and over the extended pipe. The railroad worker clamped his hands around the weapon as he caught it. Chasing these men from inside the bubble would be fruitless. On the triple underpass, the railroad worker tensed and then compacted his body so he was kneeling behind a railroad switching box. In well-defined movements gained from experience, this man neatly detached specific components of the rifle. A soft railroad brakeman's bag lay on the railroad bed. One by one, the worker neatly slid each part of the rifle into the bag. Then he walked nonchalantly north up the railroad track. The president's car blended into the darkness under the triple overpass. The agent with the automatic weapon remained standing as the follow-up car too disappeared below the underpass. The men who had watched from the top of the underpass descended upon the parking lot as a multitude of people converged in slow motion up the hill. Yet the man who had waved the umbrella sat casually on the curb with the man in the blue shirt. He watched the mass of people rush up the hill as the man in the beret spoke into a walkie-talkie with a long antenna. The man in the dark suit had just returned to the fence area behind the plaza. A Dallas policeman, his revolver drawn, had run up the hill and confronted him with his handgun. The man in the suit showed his empty hands and pulled out some kind of identification. Bernard Barker, dressed casually in a light shirt, stood next to him. He also thrust out his identification to the police officer. The cop put his gun back in the holster and the man in the suit merged with the crowd from the plaza. A white-helmeted policeman rushed up the hill toward the corner of the bridge and scanned ahead. Under the bridge, near where the curb had been hit by a bullet, a dark-haired man touched the blood on his cheek. 
As he stood across the street, the man with the beret had some type of device strapped to the small of his back. He walked unconcerned down the sidewalk in the direction of the triple underpass. Back up Elm Street, police motorcycles and cars were angled at the depository entrance and people went in and out. For a second, Patch thought he saw Oswald on the top of the depository steps, holding something in his hand as if he were praying, but he wasn't sure. A helmeted policeman dropped his motorcycle and stampeded diagonally through the disoriented crowd toward the steps. Then he disappeared inside the building. A man that could have been Oswald moved between the mailbox and a group of police gathered below the steps. Back in the center of the plaza, most of the parade spectators began to run up the hill toward the stockade fence. Patch put his head in his hands and backed off as a huge locomotive moved down the tracks. As he wandered back to the stockade fence, he draped his arms over the dimensional barrier around the picket fence and hung his head. The limousine emerged onto the freeway. The man with blood drizzling down his face looked confused near the curb down below the underpass. A mother and father covered their two children on the ground while a photographer took pictures. Hatch slowly shook his head as the gruesome scene, now chaotic with darting people in traffic, would not leave his thoughts. Most people in the plaza had run up the grass hill. It was as if he were not just inside the bubble, but within a horrific nightmare. A wide, dissipating glob of smoke drifted into the plaza from the hill with the stockade fence. A helmeted policeman left his motorcycle at the curb and started up the underpass hill. Patch fell to the ground and propped his elbows below his knees and hung his head. Those to whom he had trusted to stop this murder had allowed it to take place. He cried within the bubble. When he finally looked up, he thought he saw Roswald in a t-shirt run down the hill toward Elm Street. He jumped into a light-colored Nash Rambler station wagon and pulled over to the curb. In the slow-moving retrograde traffic, a Cadillac almost hit the Rambler. As the station wagon slowly drove away, Patch got to his feet. Within the confusion of the crowd, he moved back along Elm Street. As he started down Houston Street, Jim Braden, in a top coat and snap-rim hat, exited from the brick building behind the depository. Braden carried an oversized briefcase and crossed the street out of sight. Patch stumbled onto the sidewalk and held the edge of the building. His shadow formed darker. The chaos returned to the entire plaza with the sound at first and then fresh air. He heard loud wailing and crying as he turned. Sherry was not at the corner. A herd of people had rumbled up the hill toward the stockade fence. His watch read 1.30 p.m., but only 15 minutes had passed on the hearth sign atop the depository. Sherry ran down the sidewalk from the depository, screaming his name. Patch! They shot the president! She threw her arms around Patch, and he looked into her teary eyes. I saw it. I saw it all. You just faded away. He hugged her tightly. I really thought I was going to stop him from being shot. I don't understand any of this. And Braden, he came out of the Daltex building, he said, pointing at the building perpendicular to the depository, carrying a case. He was in on this. Sherry helped him to his feet. Where's Oswald? Pretty sure I saw him get into a station wagon on Elm Street. Oswald must have killed the president. Pat shook his head. No, he didn't. 
There were six to eight shots. How do you know this? I heard three, maybe four. Oswald is up to his eyeballs in this, but he was at a booth in the lunchroom. Somebody stashed a gun and shells upstairs before this even happened. There must be fingerprints all over those boxes up there. He looked up at her and held her shoulders. And I called the FBI, Sherry. And Pilatus wrote to J. Edgar Hoover. Patch wiped his eyes. His stomach churned as if he had a sudden onslaught of the flu. His hand shook. The radio on the motorcycle across the street erupted with a report. What is thought to be a 30 caliber rifle. Attention all squads. The suspect from Elman Houston is reported to be an unknown white male, about 30, slender, slender build, 5 foot 10 inches tall, 165 pounds, armed with what is thought to be a 30-30 rifle. No further description is available at this time or information. Where did they get that information? asked Patch, thinking back to what he had just observed. A man with a large ring went to speak with a lanky man with short dark hair. That man, I've met him before. The radio dispatch disrupted his thoughts. Attention all squads, the suspect in the shooting at Elma Houston. Suspect is to be an unknown white male, approximately 30, 165 pounds, slender bill, armed with what is thought to be a 30-30 rifle, repeat, unknown white male, 30, 165 pounds, slender bill, no further description at this time or information. Across the street, three men marched with armed blue uniformed police officers along the depository building. Yet both cops had their rifles casually resting on their forearms. Two of the men wore unkempt sport coats and wrinkled pants. The third guy wore a jacket and a hat and stained light pants. Patch took a step forward as a man he recognized walked along the delivery gate in the opposite direction. That man is a general, a high-ranking general. What man, she asked. He disappeared along the building. He scanned the three men again. The forward cop had a communications device embedded in his ear. Very strange. Patch could not get the image of Kennedy's head exploding out of his mind. She put her hand on his cheek. Maybe Kennedy's okay. They blew a hole in his head, Sherry. Chapter 64 Teich Gettinger Department Store, Dallas, Texas, Friday, November 22, 1963, 1.33 p.m. They scrambled out of the elevator and moved toward the crowd gathered in front of the televisions. For over a half an hour, Rumors pervaded Main Street about President Kennedy having died. A black and white soap opera appeared on all the console and portable sets along the shelves. A woman with short dark hair on the screen was responding to an older gentleman sitting with her on the sofa. And I thought about it, and I have a great deal of thought, Grandpa. The word bulletin to the right of eight notations for CBS News in white letters on a black screen darkened every set in the area. Someone shuffled, unseen in the background. Then the authoritative voice of Walter Cronkite echoed ubiquitously throughout the store. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. Goosebumps raced up Patch's arms and legs as he clutched onto Sherry, his throat tightened. 
First reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Oh God, Patch, she said, crying into his shoulder. People in the store gasped and cried, and one man began yelling. More details just arrived, but these details about the same as previously. President Kennedy shot today as his motorcade left downtown Dallas. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up and grabbed Mr. Kennedy. She cried, oh no, the motorcade sped on. The United Press says that the wounds for President Kennedy perhaps could be fatal. Repeating a bulletin from CBS News, President Kennedy has been shot by a would-be assassin in Dallas, Texas. Stay tuned to CBS News for further details. A coffee commercial followed with a pendulum swinging over a cup. Patch pulled her back as the commercial continued. Listen, Sherry, those people in New Orleans and Tampa, maybe even Chicago, they did this. What about Jack in the plaza this morning? And then he was in the newspaper office. I saw him back in the plaza again when the retrograde dissolved. I don't understand what role Oswald had, but I'm telling you there was a gun planted on that sixth floor and three spent shells. And the president's limousine hadn't even rounded the corner. You need to go to the police patch and tell them I was retrograded inside a time bubble. How do I explain that I saw the planted gun? and that I saw people fire at the president from that hill. And what about Braden? They need to know who shot Kennedy and the governor. Patch looked over her shoulder as the soap opera, As the World Turns, showed an earth turning, but the ominous CBS News bulletin returned to the screens. She held his hands tightly as Cronkite's voice drowned out the store chatter. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. Further details on an assassination attempt against President Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. President Kennedy was shot as he drove from Dallas Airport to downtown Dallas. Governor Conley of Texas, in the car with him, was also shot. It's reported that three bullets rang out. A Secret Service man was heard to shout from the car, he's dead. Whether he referred to President Kennedy is not yet known. The President, cradled in the arms of his wife, Mrs. Kennedy, was carried to an ambulance and the car was rushed to Parkland Hospital outside Dallas. The president was taken to an emergency room in the hospital. Other White House officials were in doubt in the coroners of the hospital as to the condition of President Kennedy. Repeating, repeating this bulletin, President Kennedy shot while driving in an open car from the airport in Dallas, Texas to downtown Dallas. Recounting again the details of this incident, three shots were heard to ring out as Kennedy, Governor Conley, and Mrs. Kennedy rode in the back seat of an open car. Immediately, a Secret Service man said he saw blood spurt from the President's head. He fell into the lap of Mrs. Kennedy, and Mrs. Kennedy shouted, Oh no! Governor Conley was seen to crumple also. The car sped on, and the motorcade speeded up, rushed to Parkland Hospital in Dallas where the President and Governor Conley were rushed to the emergency room. A Secret Service man was heard to say he's dead as the President was lifted from the rear of the White House touring car, the famous bubble top from Washington, and taken to the hospital. Reporters about five car lengths behind the chief executive heard what sounded like three bursts of gunfire. We will keep you advised as more details come in. The incident has taken place only in the last few minutes in Dallas. Stay tuned to CBS News for further details. 
was only on October the 24th that our ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson, was assaulted in Dallas after leaving a dinner meeting there. They moved closer to the counter. The microphone angled up from the desk as Cronkite spoke. Then he slowly turned and brought his dark rimmed glasses down to his eyes. He rubbed his nose with his thumb, and he read something to his right. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official. He clutched his right shirt sleeve, then his voice was clear. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central. Sherry closed her eyes and put her head on Patch's shoulder. Standard time. Cronkite gazed up to where there must have been a clock to his right. Two o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Cronkite swallowed and again put on his glasses briefly. The emotion had overcome the unshakable man. He pressed his lips together, attempting to constrain his reaction to the death of John F. Kennedy. His voice choked for a second. Vice, <coughs> Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in Dallas, but we do not know the glasses came off again to where he has proceeded. Presumably he will be taking the oath shortly and become the 36th President of the United States. As Cronkite pressed his lips and again put on the glasses, Patch moved with Sherry through the housewares department. The clerks in the store cried at the counters and customers hugged each other. They retreated to the elevators. He stared at the floor and held Sherry as they moved toward the first level. The jewelry department and clothing departments looked as if the store had closed. Sporadic cries and people darting for the glass doors added to the unreal atmosphere. Patch gripped her hand tightly as he ran to an Alco payphone. He tried three times to speak to the operator. Without hesitation, as Sherry held onto his arm, he requested the number he had memorized four months ago. The line clicked and the background noise filled the earpiece. Then the line rang. Roselli's voice was loud and clear, but he thought someone else had called him. Taps, any more on Dallas? Mr. Roselli, it's Hatch Kincaid. Who? Hatch Kincaid. Hey, I don't know any Patch Kincaid, pal. Then he hung up and Patch stared at the phone. What happened, Patch? We're screwed. He said he didn't know any Patch Kincaid. We're on our own. The attaché. It has classified documents. How far is that from here, Patch? Just up the street, sweetness. We'll nail these people. Every one of them. As they hurried up Main Street, Patch and Sherry had trouble at first getting through the barricade of policemen with rifles and hundreds of people who had drifted into the plaza. Amazingly, traffic flowed directly through the crime scene. They turned onto the South Houston Street sidewalk. Patch remembered now. In the future, Reunion Tower would guard the plaza from a lofty perch to the right. Eight blocks down, Union Station and the train yards appeared on the left. Several minutes later, they walked across the solid floor toward the basement entrance. This is just so awful, he said as they descended the staircase. I could have saved him. You were trapped, Patch. Kennedy's dead, Sherry, he said, looking at the footlockers. He pulled the key out from his wallet and crossed to locker number 101839. Then he inserted the key and popped open the steel door. When he saw the empty locker, he shuffled back. He looked at Sherry's astonished face. They took it, she said. What now, Patch? 
best place we can be now is at the police station. Chapter 65 Dallas Police Station, Municipal Building, 106 South Howard Street, Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963, 2.33 p.m. Have information. A suspect just went in the Texas Theater on West Jefferson. Patch waited around 15 minutes within the crowd behind the rope barrier outside the Dallas police station. Grief overtook fatigue and hunger. One of the cops, a tall man with blue eyes and full uniform, exited the station and took up a position about five feet from Patch. He adjusted his hat as one of the radios across the barrier crackled. Suspect on shooting. Police officer is apprehended and en route to the station. Patch leaned forward to the gray-haired cop. Someone shot a policeman? Yes, sir. At the Texas Theater. Caught him on the floor level of the Texas Theater after a fight. How did they catch someone so fast? Cop looked over his shoulder. We've talked to a man who saw someone in a hat, brown coat, and glasses on the sixth floor. Then he saw the same guy get into a Rambler station wagon after the shooting. Did they catch this guy? Asked Patch. No, sir. Word went out over the dispatch that suspect went into the theater, apparently not the man in the window. Patch spoke in a softer voice. They must have had a description from somebody who, I would say they've arrested Brayton, he exited the other building. The sirens expanded to a loud crescendo. Numerous flashing blue and red lights spun across the stone edifice. We've had a shooting of a police officer DOA at Methodist. The suspect has been apprehended at the Texas Theater and en route to the station. We're bringing the prisoner straight to City Hall. Where did you say you had him? Suspect has been arrested at the Texas Theater. Hatch, they sure got whoever it was fast. No, the guy in the theater shot a cop, not the president. I'm going to the cops. I was a witness to Kennedy's murder. We have information from the agent out there here at the TNP. Said that the train has stopped over the overpass, the triple overpass. That there was a person jumping the ninth boxcar from the front engine. Said he's hiding in the car. Is that train stopped up there now? I'm behind the Texas School Book Depository. The train has stopped. He said that it's a ninth car from the engine, a gondola-type car. Said he's hankered down inside. Any unit from Melman Houston. Did you receive that information? See if you can raise anybody over there at Tippett's car. See if you can ascertain what squad has the lady witness to the shooting at Oak Cliff. 26 does. Where are you? I'm at the city hall, fixing to go into the basement. 10-4, I'll meet you there. We're instructed here at Parkland to clear through you to get us clear through Lovefield area. We have a truck for the casket. All right. Sherry's eyes filled again. This is so awful. Patch's eyes had been closed for nearly a minute. A dark-haired reporter with an open notebook ran by and shouted to someone in the crowd, Suspect is Lee Harvey Oswald, 24. He works in the depository building. What? shouted Patch. Sherry raised her hands to her mouth. They're talking about the cop, not the president, said Patch. The rifle used to kill the president was a 7.65 Mauser, added a cop to the right. That's what I saw, said Patch. 
An orderly found a bullet at Parkland on the stretcher, totally intact. That's impossible, said Patch as he turned to her. With all that shooting, how could a bullet be intact? Another reporter looked down at his notebook. Oswald was quite boisterous in the squad car. He boarded a bus and then got into a cab, said one of the reporters. That's not true either, said Patch. I'm pretty sure I saw him get into that station wagon. What did he say, Dan? Somebody shouted in back. He asked after his arrest, what's this all about? And he said he knew his rights. What about the cop? Asked a little reporter with a high forehead. He claimed he didn't know that a police officer was killed. A.J. Hardell was his alias, said another man with suspenders. No, said the dockhead reporter. He told the cops to figure out who he was. They said Hadell was not his real name and he was dishonorably discharged from the Marines. He lived in Russia, one of the cops said, cupping his hand. He'll fry, said another man. He said he had trouble with the police in Orleans to passing out pro-Castro literature. Yet he was complaining he wasn't treated right and demanded his rights. Screw him, commie bastard. Patch put his arm around Sherry and they moved away from the crowd. We can't hang around here, not with Oswald under arrest. They walked quickly down the sidewalk. She said nothing until they were around the corner. You may have seen Oswald in that lunchroom. He knows all about this and why it happened. And he probably knows who shot Kennedy and the governor. Hotel Addison, Dallas, Texas, November 22, 1963. 3.20 p.m. Central Standard Time. Lee Oswald seems to be the prime suspect in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, said the newsman on the hotel TV. Patched towel around his waist and still drying his hair with the other towel, stormed out of the bathroom. How can they say that? This is a frame-up. That's what it is. They can say whatever they want, said Sherry. He threw the hair towel back in the bathroom. I was in there. I saw him in the lunchroom. How does that translate to the prime suspect in the assassination of Kennedy? All wrapped up in three hours. Wait, here's one of the cops. A bald-headed cop with a serious demeanor described the arrest of Oswald. Patch had seen him before. The boy that we apprehended for the shooting of Officer J.D. Tibbet is an employee of the book factory where the shots that killed the president were fired from. What the hell is he talking about? shouted Patch, now standing in front of the TV. He was seen on the floor below the window where the shots were fired some 15 minutes prior to the shooting. Well, that's not true. He was a former U.S. Marine marksman who defected to Russia in 1959 and returned to the United States approximately a year ago with a Russian bride, I understand. He won't admit to anything other than he was a communist. Rifle, according to the FBI, was a 6.5 Mannlicher Carcano Italian rifle. The FBI? Why did they change the rifle? Police must have known what gun it was, Patch. Italian rifle? That's not what was up there. They've all been briefed. Somebody has got this information on Oswald to them, or they already had it. This phony communist stuff, where did it come from? She stood and walked up to him. Patch. In the other timeline, can you remember anything about what happened after the assassination? Moon knows. He said something about Sunday morning. They blocked my thoughts so I wouldn't know all about this. Let's reason it out, Patch. 
You saw the gun and the shells up there before the shooting. You're right. Somebody is framing Oswald. They sent a phony Oswald out to that shooting range. They had somebody at the car dealership pretending to be Oswald. They have been ever since he was handing out those pamphlets in New Orleans. Why were they so anxious to film and listen to Oswald's every movement? To use what we did to frame him. Patch stared at the film of Oswald arrested in front of the theater. I know Marcello needed Kennedy out of the way. By the way, Marcello was acquitted this afternoon in New Orleans. I just heard it on the TV. Patch pinched the bridge of his nose. So people in the military and the intelligence agencies hated Kennedy. It all boils down to how much Oswald knew. And Pilatus said he knew a lot. What are you saying? I'm saying, sweetness, they'll kill him. They have to. Maybe he was already supposed to be dead. How do you know that? I don't know. But once Oswald's gone, there's no finding out the truth. Ever. Hotel Addison, Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963. 5.13 p.m. Central Standard Time. Patch sat quiet with Sherry on the edge of the hotel room bed. They had not spoken since Air Force One with the President's casket aboard had landed at Andrews Air Force Base near Washington. On the black and white TV set, a silver transport container had been pneumatically lifted up to the casket off the plane. A military contingent of four soldiers from the branches of the service stood on the tarmac. When the Attorney General appeared with Mrs. Kennedy inside the opening, Sherry gripped Patch's hand. A light-colored ambulance back toward the lift. Mrs. Kennedy wore the same outfit that he had seen just hours before in the plaza. Now it was stained with her husband's blood. The container was then lowered and the President's brother escorted her to the ambulance door. The soldiers hoisted the casket off the container and slowly placed it in the rear of the ambulance. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover has assured the country that the Dallas police has got their man, Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald, an avowed Marxist and communist, is under arrest at police headquarters in Dallas. Patch closed his eyes and fell back on the mattress. An enveloping power encircled everything here. Somebody produced this scenario and it dropped the damning tidbits on the public. Patch, let's get away from the TV. Maybe go downstairs. I can't eat anything, Sherry, he said, sitting up as the ambulance pulled away from Air Force One. I'll have some water. As he stood, someone on the TV said the new president was about to speak. Patch looked at Sherry and again they sat on the edge of the bed. Johnson spoke with a number of men in suits near the plane. Then with his hand half in his pocket, he walked in jerky movements toward a series of microphones. An aide came over and checked the microphones. Men in shadows crisscrossed the tarmac. Then Mrs. Johnson, in a light coat and hat, holding a black pocketbook, joined them. She moved closer and Johnson turned to face the microphones. He had on large, clear glasses. An aide turned to tell him something. Johnson stared ahead as the background hum of the airport seemed to hold the tragedy together as the new president waited. The aide motioned to him. Johnson looked around, then a strong Texas accent bit into the night air of November 22, 1963. This is a sad time for all people. We have suffered a loss that cannot be weighed. For me, it is a deep 
personal tragedy. I know that the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. I will do my best. That is all I can do. I ask for your help and God's. For 29 minutes, Patch had managed not to watch the overhead TV in the bar adjacent to the restaurant. They both moved inside the bar and closer to the screen when the network began showing Parkland Hospital film from earlier in the afternoon. People had gathered outside the hospital, cried and held on to each other. Reporters and cigarettes hanging from their mouth jotted down information into small notebooks. Several still photos were interdispersed within the film. Patch heard Sherry grasp when Jack Ruby, in a suit with a white handkerchief in his jacket pocket, stood with a gaggle of reporters inside the hospital. He wore dark glasses and appeared to be holding something in his hand. What the hell is he doing there? asked Patch. The photo dissolved into the film of the activity outside the emergency room. Patch slumped back on one of the bar stools. He glanced at the TV. He turned toward the television when a reporter began speaking about the rifle being carried into the depository. Apparently this is what happened. Oswald was driven to work on the nights that he stayed with his wife by a 19-year-old Wesley Buell Frazier who noticed there was a package lying on the back seat and asked Oswald what was in that package. Curtain rods was the reply. This was the reason for the trip to the Payne residence. Frazier said the package was made out of a brown paper like from a grocery store and was two feet long. Frazier said Oswald got out of the car was wearing the jacket that has big sleeves in them and he put the package under his arm. I thought he had his lunch in his hand, said Patch. That's what I saw. It must have been somebody else who saw him walk into that depository. Chapter 66 Hotel Addison, Dallas, Texas, 7.09 p.m. Central Standard Time. This is Doug Reamer reporting from Dallas Police Headquarters where a little over 90 minutes ago, the suspect in the shooting of Officer J.D. Tibbet appeared in a lineup for potential witnesses to the shooting. I can report that Oswald was arrogant and unruly during that session. These are some of the things that he shouted out. You know what you're doing. You're trying to railroad me. I want my lawyer. You are doing me an injustice by putting me out there dressed different from these other men. I am out here the only one with a bruise on his head. I don't believe the lineup is fair. I decided to put on a jacket similar to those worn by some of the other individuals in the lineup. All of you have a shirt on and I have a t-shirt on. I want a shirt or something. This t-shirt is unfair. Patch stretched out on the bed and sat up. He was so efficiently set up by professionals. I don't know anything about this police officer's death, but Oswald did not shoot President Kennedy. Here now, said the other reporter back in the studio, is a live picture of Dallas Police Headquarters where the suspect is expected to come down the hallway. Oswald, in a tattered dark shirt and white t-shirt underneath, was sucked into a sea of clamoring reporters. A linear abrasion cut the skin above his swollen left eye. They jabbed cameras at him and flashbulbs popped. Someone asked him if he had shot the president. I uh, 
Uh, I don't know what this is all about. I work in that building. Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. He's furious, said Sherry, standing by the TV. Damn it, he should be. Not allowed to have a lawyer? Why are they dealing with these reporters, she asked. Pat shook his head. Then he saw Jack milling about the police station corridor with the other reporters. He leaped off the bed and pointed at Jack Ruby, the balding man in the suit, before the camera panned away. He was at the hospital, and now he's at police headquarters, Sherry. How would he get in there at all? Patch paced the room. I wish I could remember something. Let's say Jack conspired with somebody, anybody. If Oswald was any way involved, he's a dead man. Well, what do I do, shoot Jack? Moon knows the answer, Patch. You heard him, and he wouldn't tell you. And how do we find Moon now? Patch leaped on the bed and lay back on the pillow. He stared at the plastered ceiling. She moved over next to him and he closed his eyes as she held him. I worry about retrograde. What if I'm taken totally back? She slid her arms around him. Then I would just not let you go, Mr. Kincaid. Patch turned on the TV set again. The black and white picture was the only light in the hotel room. Reporters prepared to speak with Oswald after a judicial hearing around one o'clock in the morning. Let's replay a film of the alleged killer of President Kennedy from this evening while he was in custody with Dallas police. Oswald stepped through the reporters earlier this evening. These people have given me a hearing without legal representation or anything. Did you shoot the president? I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. Will you ever get an attorney, Sherry? She shook her head. We now switch to Dallas Police Headquarters where Lee Harvey Oswald, charged in both the killing of Officer Tibbet and President Kennedy, is being brought up to the gathered reporters. Thought I just saw Jack again, said Sherry. Where? In the crowd of reporters. Oswald coughed with the police. Step forward. You buy that rifle. I don't know you people have been given, but I emphatically deny these charges. Pat shook his head as the district attorney's press conference came on the screen. The wavy, white-haired district attorney named Henry Wade spoke to the press and to the television camera in a sharp, almost punitive Texas twang. No, we, we have further questioning to do. Now, we'll probably let him sleep tonight, then, then talk to him in the morning. Where will he be held, sir? Sir? He didn't give any motive since he denies them both. His, I don't know whether he has or not. His mother has been here and his brother has been here all afternoon. Does he appear sane to you? Yes, he does. Is he a member of any communist front organization? That I can't say at the present time. Well, uh, the only one I mentioned was the Free Cuba Movement or whatever that... Jack, in back of the report, has corrected the district attorney. Fair play. Fair play for Cuba, I believe was that. Why do you think he would want to kill the president? The only thing I do is take the evidence presented to jury and I don't pass on uh, 
why he did it or anything else. We, we're just interested in proving that he did it, which I think we have. He's got a good case. Did he struggle under arrest? There was a struggle at the time of the arrest. There was a struggle in the Texas theater when uh, a Dallas police officer was arresting him and the pistol was snapped at another police officer's head and didn't fire. At that time, a scuffle ensued inside of the Texas theater where he was arrested by six officers. Sir, has that pistol been previously discharged? Yes. Twice. And he told anyone he tried to kill the president? He hasn't admitted killing the president to anyone. Do you have any reason to believe that there was any organization behind him? How is it he says that there's nothing mentioned to him? Well, I don't know what he said. He says he didn't do it. You know his place of birth? I do not. Age and so forth, on specifications on that. What is his correct age, please? 24, I believe. Full name? Full name is Lee Harvey Oswald, O-S-W-A-L-D. What are the names of his address, Mr. Wade? Has he been in trouble before in Fort Worth or Dallas? I think he has been in Dallas only two months. Where does he come from? From where? From where? New Orleans. What is his mother's name? I do not have that with me. Are you gratified, Mr. District Attorney, that this case has been closed so soon after the incident? There is others that, uh, that that we are going to, we hope to get more. We know that we have more that we know is on their way to Washington at present. All right. The right. Both guns? Both? Both guns. How many shoulders go? Can you say whether you have a witness who says he saw his name on the record? No, I cannot. What was the result of paraphrasing that? I don't think he gave any reason. Where are you going to move him to? Uh, Dallas County Jail. How much longer do you plan to question this man tonight? No longer, I don't think. I am this. Has he been officially advised that he's charged with that sort I do not know. He had just been charged. I have no advised of that other than taken before the magistrate. Hatch flipped on the side lamp. That cinches it. Jack knows about New Orleans, Sherry. He'll kill Oswald. I'm sure of it. He put his arm around Sherry and they lay back on the bed, covered with just the silver TV light. When I was with Hunt, he mentioned a defector program, a spy program to Russia. It's as if the whole thing scripted out has already been written. Something isn't right here. Well, 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 they picked the perfect fall guy. These people are the best in the world at what they do, and they just did it to Oswald. And as noted, the entire telephone system for Greater Washington was inexplicably turned off this time during and after the assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 67 Hotel Addison, Dallas, Texas, 12.01 p.m., Saturday, November 23, 1963. On the TV, the cars arrived in black and white, and the others rounded the drive to the White House on the very day after the murder of President Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. A constant arrival and departure of those who had been touched by the late president's idealism and vigor entered and exited through the south portico of the White House. 
The weather had turned overcast and a drizzle slowly magnified the grief shrouding Washington on this November day. The trees had lost their summer leaves. The bare branches, rigid and wet, shivered with the chilling wind and the realization that John F. Kennedy was gone. Oswald, according to the news reports, would be moved to the old county jail at Daly Plaza. Patch held a hotel pen and occasionally jotted down notes on what he could remember from the other timeline onto the pad. I would call the Dallas police or I'd call the FBI and tell them about Jack because they're going to move Oswald to the county jail this afternoon. But what would happen, Sherry, if I told them? Sherry dried her hair with the towel. Nothing would happen. Exactly. They'd probably arrest us. Not probably, they would. What are you writing, she asked as she sat on the edge of the bed. She stared at the TV. How is Jackie even able to function? Those poor children. She just lost a baby last summer. I need to start at the beginning. Beginning of what? Of what I can remember. Good idea. She leaned over toward him. What can you remember? Patch tightened his eyes. I remember being in Vermont on the farm with Jeffries and his wife. Where did you come from before that? In the woods. I was in the woods coming down the trail to the farm. There was snow all around and it was a bright day. But Patch, she said as she moved up to the desk, what about the woods? Fog. In the woods. Yes. Same as Spokane. I'd say that's where you came back. Patch shook his head as the district attorney came on TV yet another time. They were asking him about Oswald. This guy seems to have all the easy answers. The reporter held out his microphone. How do you sum him up uh, as a man, based on your experience with criminal types? Oh, I think it's a man that planned this murder weeks or months ago and has laid his plans carefully and carried them out and has planned at that time what he's going to tell the police that are questioning him at present. Patch concentrated his attempts at remembering as the press conference continued. Then he looked up at the mention of the death penalty. We'll ask the death penalty. Uh, how many cases of this type have you been involved in? That is when the death penalty is involved. Since I've been district attorney, we've, uh, I've asked the death penalty in 24 cases. And how many times have you attained it? 23. Patch's thoughts focused on a vast complex with technicians and Mankiewicz, older, running around with a cigar lodged in his mouth. Mankiewicz, Hastings Mountain, Sector 13. What is it, Patch? The place where I was, he said as he thought back to the fog. The embarking chamber. I did go through time and back to Vermont. He closed his eyes and visualized the firehouse calendar on Jeffrey's wall, 1961. She held his shoulder. That's why they're aware of you. I remember meeting David Ferry under the name of Easterly. Flew Mankiewicz and me into Cuba. The attack. Ferry has flown numerous missions into Cuba. The Bay of Pigs. I went behind the lines. It was Carlos Sanchez that I was after. He blew up American cities in 1986. You've got to be kidding. I was only supposed to go back a few months, but I accidentally went back to 1961. We were chasing Sanchez later behind Cuban lines. Mankiewicz and me. At the dam, I was retrograded back to 2003. After bin Laden attacked the World Trade Center in New York City, 3,000 killed, she held on to him and nestled her wet hair against his chest. 
I had a table in Dealey Plaza and sold JFK recordings and books. That's why I'm older, Sherry. They kidnapped me in 2013. Moon built with others a facility under Hong Kong Harbor. He chased me back through time. That's why he was after me. That's why the moon of this time was after me. He told his counterpart from 1963 the story. I didn't want to come back because when I came back the first time, Kennedy was alive in 1986. She stared at him with her mouth open, and your going back caused him to die. Patch nodded his head. Organized crime. And the intelligence agencies are up to their eyeballs in this, and the FBI, and who knows who else. I understand this all now. Kennedy's brother, the Attorney General, he's launching a war on organized crime to wipe them out. He illegally tried to deport Carlos Marcello. That's why Jack has been stalking Oswald. Whenever he gets the chance, he'll do it. Oswald should not be alive now, but he is, said Patch. They took a guy who was pretending to be a communist, this double agent, a guy working for the intelligence agencies, a guy who went to Russia and brought home a Russian wife. Oswald said it himself last night when he was so upset, said Sherry. He's a patsy. Find out who knew about the defector program and set up Oswald, then you find out who orchestrated this plot. My God, said Patch, as he leaned back and spoke with his eyes closed. Time is so fragile, Sherry. You can't just go back and try and change things without making things worse. It's like an aphrodisiac, this going back through time. This is true. He looked at the TV. Hundreds of people were lined up outside the White House. The black umbrellas were popped into the air like morning creatures in the rain. She rubbed his shoulders and her tears fell gently on his neck. Patch. He wiped her tears with a tissue. Sherry, I remember what happened. Sunday morning, when they were going to move Oswald from the police cell, Jack came out of nowhere, wearing his suit and hat and he pushed a gun into Oswald's gut and killed him. But they're moving him this afternoon. You heard the report. She stepped back from the TV and faced him. If Oswald dies, no one will ever know his real background. And then later, they used all that intelligence persona of Oswald and branded him a communist. They had the Chief Justice head a commission. You'll see. Warren? Yes. He said as he watched the members of Congress pull up and enter the White House under military guard. Yes, I remember now. They had a commission of important people and they must have made it their business to convict Oswald. I thought when I worked in the plaza, I really did, I thought what they said was true. I thought Oswald killed Kennedy. We haven't got much time to stop Jack. Patch laughed and shook his head. And then what happens? How does the future change again? That isn't the question, Patch. It's the moral imperative. The moral imperative is in the eye of the beholder. Patch, you said it yourself. Oswald was involved somehow, but he didn't fire the gun. Patch stood and then hovered over the TV set. Then he nodded his head. I don't know the implications, but I'm going to stop Jack. Moon is still out there, and he knows what will happen also. Let's go down to the police station. Dr. Moon is about to meet his match. I thought it was essential to put into these chapters Oswald's actual words, the raw footage of the police station on November 22nd, 23rd. 
disregard what the Warren Commission says and just listen directly to what he's saying. It sounds like a guy who's being framed and he's not too happy about it. There is the ever-present Jack Ruby lurking, stalking, and in different areas around that police station. One has to wonder without too much speculation why he's there. It's not just to bring sandwiches to the policeman. I have a hard time believing that Oswald was up on the sixth floor. I have a hard time believing he could have ever even gotten down to the second floor confrontation or if it even existed. There are no written transcripts of what Oswald said in the police interrogation or with the FBI. There are no audio recordings. Very, very strange. For the audio recordings that we do have, which are public record, were put under voice analysis many years ago, and Oswald was found to be telling the truth. Next week, we start our final installment of Return to Dallas, where events become topsy-turvy and people emerge from the shadows. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.
And then one of the major characters in the plot against President Kennedy makes an appearance in Vegas with Patch and Sherry, introduced by Louis McWillie.